This episode deals with issues concerning suicide and depression. If you require support, please see the links provided in the show notes. everyone to I was a teenage fundamentalist. Now I'm not going to make the same mistake that I made last week. I'm going to say, hi Troy. Hey, how you going Brian? <laughs> I was going to interrupt you then and say, hey, don't forget about me like you did last, it wasn't last week, it was last fortnight. That's right, it was. Which is 14 nights. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard that from someone yeah. very wise in the past. So we are this week going to, like all good stories, they have a sequel. And I mean, some of our stories have more than one, and they have prequels. Yeah, like Gremlins, Gremlins Two. Yeah, but I'm talking about good ones. Police Academy Nine, Troy Story, and Toy Story. This is Troy Story Two. Now, did you think Toy Story Two was as good as Toy Story One? Yeah, I think they were all good. They were good. You know, they they never lost it. It's never like you go, oh, you know, it's like I don't know. I was going to make a Star Trek reference then, but I didn't think you were going to get it. I wouldn't. I'd, I do like sci-fi, but certainly nowhere near as much as you. It's not like The Search for Spock or Star Trek V. Yeah, see, no. crickets, I don't get it. I just, I don't get it. But that's okay, and that's fine. Listeners, today I just want to announce, because it's very important, that I have a man cold. It is, obviously the severity is far greater than any other cold. So I will sound a little bit more raspy or hopefully I won't cough. I'll sinusy is what you sound. I I can hear that resonance going on in the in the nose. I feel like there's many residents in my nose right now. It's it's quite <laughs> blocked. It is disgusting. <laughs> oh fuck you. I might edit I might edit that joke out actually. Oh, yeah. that, was, only, that was pretty bad. Only if you edit your fucking Star Trek joke out. <laughs> okay. If if anyone gets that Star Trek joke, just let us know on the It wasn't the a joke. Oh, it was a reference. Oh, there's a difference. I it was think, a reference. Oh you whatever. You think I'm comic book guy from The Simpsons, don't you? It was a reference. See, there's another one lost on me because I think the Simpsons were of the devil in my church days. Do you remember when the Simpsons were of the devil? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that was pretty much the whole run of the series in the 90s. Yeah. I think that's why I watched it in the end. Mm, that'd be right, sinner. Now, talking about sin. <laughs> talking about sin, over to you. Troy's story <laughs> too. Now, this is, uh, I guess it's, with that, you know, we've started off a bit joking, but this is quite a serious time in your life. This is a time in your life when you and I, you know, no, we weren't hanging out anymore, actually. I was living in another state, I think, by this time. You know, it was a, an incredibly traumatic time. So I guess I want to acknowledge that up front, that telling these stories for you will be something that won't be that easy. Yeah, I've, I've been tripping for days coming into this, as you know. You know, I reached out to you and said, do you, do you want to record early and just get it over and done with? Sort of rip the Band-Aid off. Anyway, here we are. Here we go. I'm ready for this. I really am. Yeah. And I, and I'm I'm thinking if things are funny, let's let's laugh. <laughs> oh, you know I will, and I'll I'll take the piss even if it's not funny because yeah. that's. How... I'd appreciate that actually. That's oh. you know going to break the break the intensity. I think. 
It's how I deal with trauma. And I think a lot of people that work in my field have a very, very dark sense of humor and because that's the way that you deal with it because you're dealing with dark stuff most days. And hopefully you don't take us into the depths of that darkness, but I am going to chuck it over to you. And how do you want to kick us off with Troy Story 2? Well, I, I won't say there's a snake in my boot. I, I kind of want to go back a little bit earlier than than we sort of left off last Fortnight. I think if you haven't listened to Troy's story, the episode, then please go back and listen to Troy's story because I start talking about my relationship with my then wife. I guess I want to say before I go any further, this episode is not about trying to make her look bad because, you know, she's not here and she's not giving her side of things. And so I'm going to try really hard not to do that. And if it comes across that way, then I apologize up front because that's not the point of this of this episode. The point of this episode is for me to tell my story, not to drag her through the mud or, or anything like that. At the same time, though, I'm going to talk about what happened and what happened through my interpretation and my opinion on things. This is not about saying that she was bad because I really genuinely don't believe she was. I think she was a victim of the system. Aogenus and and Pentecostalism and all that, probably even more than I I was. So yeah, I, I really want to sort of, you know, put that out there. There's been other characters that I've told the story and I haven't cared. I've just like, no, they were an ass. And so, you know, there were times when I was a shit, and you're gonna hear that today in this story. I'm 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 not gonna hold back on well, maybe I'll hold back a little bit, but I'm not gonna hold back on on a lot of things and I'm gonna make myself actually look pretty bad at times. And I'm aware of that. Still, that's not my intention with her. So I, I yeah, I, I probably oversold that, but I really, yeah, I just really want to make sure that that's not coming across as he said, she said, but she doesn't say anything because it's his podcast. It, it's always difficult, I think, when you're telling a story as something that's affected you as deeply as this, and it involves another person. And you really do want to make sure you represent them fairly. So it, it is tough. So do your best with that one. And um, yeah, talk about it from your perspective. And we shall uh, see where this takes us. So let's go way back to when we first hooked up. Now, if you have listened to my story, you will know that we hooked up just before I left for Country Town AOG and she was a pastor's kid. She was quite involved in the youth group. She was quite a high-profile member. I think that'd be fair to say, wouldn't you? Everyone knew who she was. Yep, definitely. Yep, yep. She's pastor's kid. She was one of three kids. Um, her father was not a senior pastor or anything, uh, not even an associate or, or anything. He was just one of the pastors. But she was quite hurt by a lot of the things that she had seen. And so my feeling now, and again, this is just my perspective now, is I think she really wanted out, but she was full, so full of fear. She'd had that instilled in her whole life that she didn't want to just leave. And especially where her parents were members and, and pastors in that church, it wasn't as simple as just walking away because for her to leave the church was also in a lot of ways to leave her family. And to use that Pentecostal language, it was to leave the covering of her pastor father. She was in a, in a pretty bad place. Now, another thing I want to stress is we never had sex before marriage. Never, ever. Well, 
not with each other. There was a lot of sexual tension, I guess, you know, we, we used to make out and park in erogenous zones, but I, I, I didn't even get any, I didn't even get to second base with her until we were married. Very well behaved. I know, totally, yeah. And that was that was both of us. There were times I think I probably would have if she'd let it happen, but could you imagine the crushing guilt I would have felt, you know, me and my revival centre sex messed upness? I, I don't think I would have coped very well at all. So it was probably not a bad thing that we didn't actually do it for the sake of my own sanity. But one thing that we did do all the time was fight. From the very beginning, we were two very strong personalities and we fought a lot, a whole lot. Yeah, look, I remember, and I think that's something we spoke about last episode, where that was definitely my memories of you guys as a couple was just shrouded in fighting. Yeah. And one of the things that I said last week was I said that, or last fortnight, which is 14 nights, by the way, was that the guy that was marrying us sent us to marriage counselling. I should have made that clear. It was pre-marriage counselling, right? Pre-marital counselling. So obviously, you know, you'd be worrying about getting married if you were going to marriage counselling, but it was pre-marriage counselling. But that said, we used to tear into each other. And I remember we went to the premarital counseling and they taught us to use I feel statements. You know, instead of saying, you're always doing this, you're always doing that, which is what we would say to each other. It's like, I feel, you know, I feel like this when you do that. And I feel like, but it was so funny because we were just so aggressive with each other and it just turned into, I feel you're a bitch. Well, I feel you're a dickhead, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Although we didn't use that language, right? That's, that's how good we were. We didn't even swear at each other. I feel you're a scallywag. And, you know, the irony that all you want to do is touch each other, that they taught you to use the I feel. Mm-hmm. I feel your boobs. No, you don't. So I can remember coming back from a Youth Alive conference one year, and this is sort of mid-90s. So we'd been going out a little while, and I was still at Country Town AOG, and we'd just been fighting all the time. And all of a sudden, I got away from her for a week, like a whole week without her. Like we would even fight on the phone. That's how much we fought. And I didn't really call her a whole lot over that week and coming home, I actually, you know, remember how they used to say you put out a fleece? <laughs> yes, I for do the know. Lord, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I put out a fleece. But what I said, and for those of you that don't know, putting out a fleece, it comes from a reference in the Old Testament. I don't know, was it Elijah, Elisha, one of those, put out this fleece. And if it was, what was it, if it was? If it wasn't damp or something. Yeah, if, if it didn't get the dew, <laughs> um, the dew meaning from the grass. D- not, D-E-W. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah not, not, not Elisha's family or anything. No. If it, if, yeah, if it, if it wasn't damp, God was yay or nay, whatever. So I put this fleece out, but of course I didn't have any fleece. So what I did was I said, when I get home, if she's barefoot, I'll know you want me to break up with her, right? Because it's pretty full on, right? Like 50-50 chance really, right? Anyway, she opened the door and fucking the socks. And it was like, oh, so is that barefoot or not? Well, I guess not. Really, and and then, so it wasn't even clear, and I was like, okay. So, th- th- but that's that's where I was at with the relationship from the very beginning. I'm putting out fleeces and shoes, and I, and I told the story last episode about the cigars that you know I was trying to we we're trying to smoke the cigars and stuff, and so just the fighting was just full on. And another thing that's really funny is we went to Thailand 
um, for our honeymoon. I said last week as well, when I was listening to the edit, we went to New Zealand. No, we didn't go to New Zealand. We went to New Zealand later. We went to Thailand for our honeymoon. And while we were there, No Doubt's song, Don't Speak, had just been released. And we were into worldly music by then. So we're listening to Channel V Asia the whole time. And that song was just on constant repeat. And we came back saying to everyone, oh, you got to hear this song. And, you know, this is our song. And, and years late, well, not even years later, but she said to me, isn't it ironic that our song is about splitting up? And I was totally aware of that at the time because, and, and I think I wanted to probably even at that stage split up more than she did. So by that, by this time, are you saying that both of you had come to that point of realisation that it just wasn't a sustainable relationship? Oh, no, no, this is on Honeymoon. Oh. <laughs> this is on the Honeymoon that, yeah, No Doubts Don't Speak was being played everywhere and we just really liked that song and it became our song. Um, well, I just thought there was a little bit of irony, a little bit of uncanniness was there. But there's a couple of things that she said to me over the years that made it hard for me to really be happy with her. And one of the ones was, you know, this whole purity culture and being a, a, a virgin up until you marry. One day we were talking and she said to me with full, full seriousness, she said, oh, well, blah, 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 you're used goods. And I said, what? <laughs> and she goes, you're used goods. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, you, you know, you haven't kept yourself for marriage. And I was like, oh, that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> And then there was another time when we were talking about, I was in Bible college and she started telling me that I needed to go and get a real degree as opposed to my Bible college degree. And, and that was another one that was just really quite cutting. In hindsight, that's a fair point. Oh yeah, she's totally right. Please hear me. This is what was going on at the time, right? So that was one that, that really, really cut me because it was like, it sort of reminded me of that family that had rejected me. It's like, on the one hand, we're told to go and do all this stuff for Jesus. And then on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but really you just need to get a job and be normal kind of thing. So yeah, anyway. And then there was another, another thing that she said to me, she used to always tell me that I needed to work on my credibility. And she and Pastor Jay used to say that to me all the time. And basically what they meant was I didn't have the reputation. I think as Pastor Beard once said to me, I hadn't earned the right to speak. And they were telling me that I always had to have the credibility, have the credibility. And she used to put that one on me a lot, which meant looking good in the eyes of people and I, in the eyes of the congregation and stuff. And, and that used to really, really piss me off as well because I used to say, isn't integrity more important than credibility? Because I think at that stage, Pastor Jay had a shitload of credibility, but you know, not necessarily a whole lot of integrity. So that built anxiety in me. But I think that it's it's a fair reflection of the space back then, isn't it? That it was really all about credibility. It was about reputation. It doesn't didn't matter what you did behind closed doors if you didn't get caught, or if you're an arsehole, or if you you had no empathy or whatever. But it was about the the credibility. It was playing the game. Totally. He can preach well. He can teach well. He can sing well, or whatever. But that's all that mattered. Yeah, exactly. So I really wrestled with that. And she wasn't on my side with that. It was this constant pressure to to be someone I wasn't. And that's what she'd grown up in. She'd grown up in a world where you you weren't yourself. And again, I, I, I feel for her in that. And, and I don't say that out of pity. I say that out of sympathy because it, it, it was hard. And I guess a lot of Pentecostals wouldn't have necessarily done this, but we used to sometimes travel 
even before we were married. And we'd go away together, like to visit my parents. And again, we never did anything wrong, meaning sexually. But I can remember we went to my parents to stay with my parents once. And, you know, we had separate rooms the whole bit. And she was suffering what now I look back and I think was probably anxiety. But she told me that I had to pray for her. Come and come and pray for me, like my dad was the actual language. And I don't know if you remember, her dad was pretty intense. He was a very intense character. And so she wanted me to pray with it with her until the bad feeling went away, which in her world with her dad meant pray with her in tongues for hours. And he would. He was he was freaking machine gun tongues, you know, he would, he would go for hours and she wanted me to sit in there and pray with her. And I I couldn't, it's not who I was, you know, I couldn't sit there and pray for hours and hours and hours in tongues. It's just not who I was. And so there was this pressure that I was used goods, that I didn't have a real degree, that I didn't have any credibility, that I didn't pray like her dad and look after her like her dad. And so there was all this pressure on me all the time. The other thing I think was by this stage with some of the cult stuff that I was doing, I'd put together this cult ministry thing that I was trying to get off the ground um, at the same time as doing all the raves and the church plant and all that. Benny Hinn's brother, Henry Hinn, came to town and ran a healing revival meeting in, in town. And I wrote an article. Well, actually, I didn't write an article. I was interviewed by one of the local rags here in our city, and, and, and I slammed him. I said, no, this is this is garbage. Keep your money. Here's, here's all the reasons why he's bad. And her mother was livid that I was going in the newspaper and slagging off the evangelistic ministry man. And by that stage, I'd left the church. I'd left their church and everything. I was going along to wherever I was going. But they were just pissed. Yeah, well, you were going against the uh, the Lord's anointed, weren't you? That's the way it would have been seen. Well, totally. But the, but the thing was, he was he he wasn't even Benny Hinn. He was Dodgy's dodgy brother. But still, that that wasn't good enough. And of course, when I went on Triple J to bag out the revival centers and bag out tongues by by inference, I didn't actually say tongues is bad, but by inference, I I pretty much did. I mean, they they were just livid. They were really pissed off. The other thing I think was when we got married, senior pastor from Great Big AOG, who had done all that horrible shit to me, he came to our wedding because he was their boss. And so I had to pay for a seat or half a seat, whatever, for this guy who I just really didn't like. To to marry her, it wasn't enough to just marry her. It was like I was marrying the AOG in a lot of ways. Well, that, that's the expectation though, isn't it? When you, even if I think it's not a pastor's child that you're marrying, I, I think the expectation is that you stay there and you, whatever you marry into, you stay there. I mean, I even think about my ex-wife and I and we how we were accused of being pew warmers when we were going to leave the AOG and go to the Baptist hostel. But it's that sort of thing, that there's an expectation that your marriage just doesn't involve you and your spouse. It involves the church. And we've see, we see that over and over. They'll get involved in every aspect of your life, even sex. As, as we spoke about Brie, you know, Brie would go to these 
women's meetings and they'd tell her what positions she could have sex in and what um, acts she could perform. It's that sort of really invasive and pervasive stuff, isn't it? Yeah. I think what complicated this as well is, and, and this is true of a lot of people, but her family were leaders in this church that we'd, we'd left. I, I don't think they were happy, to be honest, especially her mum. I don't think her mum was really happy with, with, with Great Big AOG herself, but, but she was loyal. So once I married in, they could say what they wanted about me, but I don't reckon they would have tolerated other people saying bad things about me. In that sense, I never felt that they, that they didn't like me. Maybe they didn't trust me, but I'd never felt that they didn't like me. Yeah, and look, these were good people. I obviously knew them as well, and I'd, I agree. I think they were good people, and we all do the best with what we've got, and we've all got the baggage from many different parts of our lives. So it is good to see that your perspective was that they would be protective of you. I, I don't think they were bad people at all. So by this stage, I'd gone to M University. I'd started doing this graduate diploma in religion and theology at their Center for Religion and Theology. And the first paper I had to write was in a hermeneutic subject. And so this is a secular university. And I decided to apply what I'd been learning to the Assemblies of God statement of faith around the Bible. So I I did. And I got there their statement, right, the AOG statement around the Bible, which was, you know, just a couple of sentences. And I applied things like actual deconstructionism, but not, you know, back in the days before it meant what it means now, right? This is sort of the Jacques Derrida style stuff. And I applied a lot of that postmodern philosophy to it. The AOG statement said something along the lines, and I should have looked this up before, but it said something along the lines of, we believe the Bible is the inerrant, excuse me, word of God in its original form. Now, of course, there is no original form. They were lost a long time ago. No one has the originals. And so in that sense, they've sort of made themselves a, a trap door, a back door to say, if there are mistakes, it's because of transmission. But at the same time, they're basically saying, we believe in a Bible that doesn't exist. And so I made that point. And I really tore down for myself, you know, it may not have convinced anyone in the AOG, but for myself, I basically tore down the idea of the inerrancy of scripture and showed that logically, philosophically, even historically from interpretation and translation, it just made no sense. And so that's a really key point for me. And this is 1998, first half of 1998, when I wrote this paper, that I basically came to the realization that I don't believe the Bible is perfect. I've started to believe that it contained the word of God, that it, you know, that God was in there somehow, but it wasn't perfect. And my wife certainly did not share that perspective. And neither did her family. And so we just started to head in different directions. Actually, let me take that back. We didn't start to head in different directions. We were heading in different directions before we got married. And that was the point I made a fortnight ago, which is 14 nights. That's the point that I made a fortnight ago was to say, for whatever reason, she agreed to a whole heap of things that we were going to do. Yeah, 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 we'll do that. We'll do that. Let's just get married. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. But then when we got married, turned around and moved in a, in a completely opposite direction. There was no desire to be 
a pastor or a pastor's wife. There was no desire to plant a church. Um, she didn't even want me to do it. So I think a lot of resentment formed by that stage. We got married in 96. So by 98, we were in some ways living quite separate lives. In other ways, no. When we were together, we were together and we were best friends and did a lot of stuff. But when we weren't together, I didn't feel like she was even existing. And it actually, that's the way I sort of wanted it because I wasn't happy with her. I was quite miserable. We had a different spirituality. We were listening to different music. Uh, we had different ideas of where we live and how we should live. I remember she used to scold me a lot about things that I was doing and the way that I was being. And I turned to her one day and I said, you are the most miserable person I know. Why would I take life advice from you? I mean, that's how frank we were being. And I can remember too, we'd go out for dinner with people who were either great big AOG or former great big AOG or connected somehow, you know, to our life back there. And I'd be talking about my, my revelations of spirituality and new ideas that were coming my way. And she would kick me under the table and I'd look at her and she just sort of give me these glares of, you know, and then later we'd get in the car and I'm like, why are we, you can't say that. If my parents find out that you've said that and, and she was really worried that her parents were going to hear things that I was saying at a dinner party where they weren't even there. She was that worried. And I talked to my pastor from the Church of Christ, the inner city Church of Christ about it. And he said, next time she kicks you under the table, just in front of everyone, ask her, why are you kicking me under the table? And he said, he said, I promise you, she'll never do it again. And so we're sitting at dinner one night and she's kicking me under the table. I said, why are you kicking me under the table? She goes, I'm not kicking you under the table. I said, yes, you are. You kick me under the table right now. Why are you kicking me under the table? And then she never kicked me under the table again. <laughs> so there's, there's some good pastoral advice. But, you know, I mean, I, I think back to, you know, I mean, there's lots of people that have said this, but in our conversation with Bart Campolo, uh, Campolo was talking about how many people in the fundamentalist scene remain in the closet, not believing fundamentalism. So not about their sexuality, but no longer believing fundamentalism, but they can't say it. I mean, you, you're a real threat to that, to someone who's grown up in fundamentalism, whose whole safety net and security is fundamentalism. And then all of a sudden you're pulling those pieces out. I can totally understand that that would just cause absolute chaos. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't want people to know uh, that you're believing something different, would you? And I think the other thing about that, Brian, is I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know that I was deconstructing to the point of it all falling apart. But maybe, maybe others did. Maybe others knew exactly where I was headed. But I really believed that I was going for a more pure form of Christianity. So that pulling of the Jenga blocks, as you say, out was actually pulling out pieces that don't that don't matter. You know that that don't need to be there. Not pulling out things to see if they were true or not. It was like, no, that's that's not true. Pull it out. Once we were in the car and that song Two Princes by the Spin Doctors, which, by the way, one of my favourite songs of the 90s. Yeah, I, do you remember? You told me I had to throw out my Spin Doctors CD. Mm, yeah, because you did. Yeah, and, and I yeah, threw it out. Because you needed to get closer to Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, yeah, okay. But anyway. Yeah, meanwhile, look, meanwhile, I liked it, yeah. And then, and then later on I went back to it like a dog to his vomit. 
we were listening to that in the car one day. It came on. And then she goes, oh, this song reminds me of you and X name, which was a guy who I know that was into her and she was she had actually considered dating him at one stage. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool. She said something. I can't remember exactly what she said. And I looked at it and I said, wait, wait a minute. And I can remember it was really like this. It was like, wait, wait a minute. Are, are you saying I'm the bad one? And she goes, well, yeah, because he had a business and he had this and that and credibility or whatever she said. And I was just like, fuck. And of course I didn't say fuck, but in my mind, I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking, who are you and how did you, why are you wearing my ring on your finger? Like this was just craziness. You know what? I I guess I need to stop and say, remembering the sort of Christianity that we believed in, there was no escape. You are married for life. And unless one of you dies, that's it, right? You are, you are stuck with this person. There was another couple of friends who were in a marriage that looked great and it turned out that that was bad. And she actually went and had sex with this guy's best friend in an attempt to end the marriage. You know, she basically ripcorded that marriage like I ripcorded the revival center. You know, she, she couldn't see any way out. And I, I don't know for sure that's why she did it, but I'm pretty sure that's why she did it because that's how you break the covenant, right, is you, you bang someone else. So that, that had happened. So I'd seen someone end their marriage, someone quite close to us or a couple quite close to us. And the other thing was I was working with the Revival Four. Remember those four goth people? Their marriages started to break down as they realized we got married because we were all in this cult. We didn't get married because we necessarily came together for all the right reasons. And so their their marriages all broke down. So here I am unpacking this cult experience. Here I am deconstructing my Pentecostalism I'm seeing marriages fall down around me. I'm deconstructing at a faster rate than her. And I can remember one day, and this is a literal thing, where I was in bed with her, not shagging. We were just in bed. And I looked over at her and I really did. I thought, who are you? I don't even know who you are. And I don't know how I got here. Remember that that movie, Julia Roberts, Sleeping with the Enemy? Yeah. It was all about being in an abusive relationship. And, and I'm not accusing her of any sort of abuse, but what I mean was, what I mean is I just felt I was trapped. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want her to be there anymore. And as I said, there was no divorce, according to our beliefs. And I hadn't deconstructed divorce. And and possibly I wouldn't have allowed myself to deconstruct divorce by that stage because I would have thought, oh, I'm just doing this because that's what I actually want. So I wasn't going to go down that path. And the only way out of this relationship was that one of us needed to die. But I did start having serious suicidal ideation at that point. I never genuinely wanted to kill myself. I never genuinely wanted to die. But I did start to toy with the idea of, of dying because that was the only way that this marriage could end. But, of course, at the same time, it's like, yeah, but if you kill yourself, you're going to go to hell. 
And so I was trapped. You know, I couldn't even die. I'd have to die in an accident or something. That's pretty, that's pretty full on. Hmm. It's it's pretty intense, and and you know it, when it all boils down, do you think it was most of this was just because you were so incredibly vastly different people moving in completely opposite directions, or was it deeper than that? I think it was deeper than that. I think I think that was a big part of it. But like I said, we were deconstructing at much, at very different rates and in very different ways, and she was not moving away from her family who were not good for her and were not good for me. So I remember going to see the female pastor at the inner city churches of Christ that I was going to and just howling and saying to her, what is wrong with me? I am such a bad person. And the pastor sat there and she looked at me and there was such compassion in her face. I could see it. The compassion was real. But she had this fundamentalist belief. So she had nothing to say. She just looked at me and she, she just said, oh, Troy, you know, and her heart was breaking, but she couldn't say, you need to get the hell out of this marriage because the belief system wouldn't allow it. She just sat there and said, I mean, metaphorically, she didn't really say it, but suck it up, princess, chin up, move on. Do, do you think it during this time, because this is, you know, you've Describe some pretty full-on things, like the the way you're feeling. That can't be contained. You, I would imagine you've said before that you guys were speaking to each other in a way that was definitely not respectful. Yeah, I was the bad guy from the Two Princes son that's, song. That's right. But do you think she was aware of it, the, of your feelings at this time? I mean, it, it was just toxic. So there was no way she was happy. And so I was depressed. Like I said, suicidal ideation. Brian, I would walk into rooms and if there were beams, because you'd go into sort of those 80s two-story houses and if there were beams across the roof, I would actually look at it, look up and go, I could throw a rope over that and hang myself. Right? Or, you know, walking near an edge, a ledge, I'd say, like, I could jump off here. That's how it was. It wasn't I want to. It was I could. Yeah, and it was it was pretty bad. So I was very depressed. I went and saw a, a doctor. I went and saw a psych. I was just a doctor. I think it was just a doctor about depression. He put me on antidepressants. It was a new one at the time. It was called Cipramil. And he told me, you can only take, he said, I want you to take half of one every two days to start, you know, sort of eat, weaning me on. The first time I took one, the next day I woke up, I had pupils like saucers. And I was like, I feel great. This is where has this been all my life, you know? And then the next day, half a half a tablet I couldn't have and I was shit again. And then it was just like, I felt like I was tripping and I was like, I can't take these. These are, these are doing my head in, right? And of course, I think now I look back, I would have said, hey, mate, just hang in there. Keep going. Don't give up yet. It was all new. And the doctor, I think, didn't know what he was doing either because he said, okay, fine, don't take them. So I then got on to Prozac, good old traditional Prozac. And uh, that was... That was helping me through. Obviously, things have taken a dive way south. I mean, you, you're not just – I mean, you're describing suicidal ideation. Yeah, it's pretty serious stuff. I mean, even though you hadn't attempted or you weren't actively planning to take your life, you were identifying opportunities. I mean, that that's serious stuff. Like, it, it's, it's really full on. And you're at that point where you – don't know whether you can go on not just with your marriage but your life I and mean, that's mm. that's 
pretty full on. I mean, you. Yeah, I was trapped. Yeah. I was trapped. And there was no way out. In spite of lacking credibility, I had integrity. I wasn't going to go and bang someone like I did Revival Center style and then dob myself in to get out. It was like, no, no, no. I'm going to have my integrity before the Lord. And, you know, so there was just no way out. Another thing that's interesting was two of my very serious relationships in between Revival Centers and Great Big AOG were with girls of Asian descent. And I, I want to sort of stress here, these were not cherry blossom girls that would sit on, you know, the side and cook your dinner and all that kind of stuff. No, I, I don't have an Asian fetish where, you know, I want a, a weak, diminished woman that I can control and all that kind of stuff. I mean, if I wanted that, I'd be in church, right? Boom, boom. But I'd had these Asian, Asian girlfriends and that had been the kind of girls that I had been attracted to. But when I came into the church, I didn't date Asian girls. I dated pastor's daughters and, you know, white women. And But when my marriage was spiraling and my mental health was spiraling and my faith was spiraling, there was still in there this rediscovering of that authentic self. And one of the things that stood out to me was, I really like Asian looking women. That's what I like. And it's kind of funny. It's almost like coming out in a sense, you know what I mean? Like you hear these stories of like Anthony and Andrew coming out and going, hey, I, you know, I like men. Instead for me, it was, I like Asian chicks, which was also, you know, you could do it, but probably wasn't the best thing to do. You know, you wanted to marry a, a nice Caucasian pastor's daughter. Yeah, and, and I mean, here you're talking 1980s, 90s Australia, still relatively racist. I mean, you're talking, you know, for those Australians listening, for those who are aware, Pauline Hanson uh, rose to prominence during the 90s and there was a real backlash against Asian people. So it's not just that you're forced to do that within the church from, from your perspective, but wider society, it wasn't seen as... The thing to do is date a nation. Yeah, it wasn't. It, it wasn't. It wasn't done as much, but but it happened. The thing is, I would go to churches where there were Asian chicks, and I'm married to my wife, and I'm looking at it and thinking, I wish I was married to them. That's actually what I want. I want to be married to a girl that I'm more attracted to, and a girl that I don't resent, etc. But I think part of it was because I'd had these two relationships outside of church, I think part of the rediscovering of the authentic self was wh whether I was, you know, full on attracted to only that kind of woman. That's obviously not true. But at the same time, I think it was going back to when I was last me, you know, like with the raves, going back to the raves, it was like unfinished business. And so thinking about dating an Asian woman was sort of an expression of this is me outside of church. Did I cheat on my wife? Did I? No. But still, you know, I was downloading, you know, pictures of Claudia Schiffer and Elle McPherson and, and all that kind of stuff. But then I discovered, oh, wow, there's really hot Asian supermodels as well. You know, nobody knew their names, especially in Australia, but I was downloading pictures of them and I kept these folders and she found them. She found all my pictures of Elle McPherson and Claudia Schiffer and stuff. And by that stage, they were topless and stuff. I'd started, you know, collecting a nice little stash of, of softcore porn. And yeah, oh man, she just tore into me. Boy, did she what? And and I didn't care. I was like, whatever. 
within the scene that you're in. I mean, it would it would have been seen as cheating. It's good as. I mean, you've done it with your heart, brother. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying, right? Remember last week when, or last fortnight, which is 14 nights, by the way, I was telling you about adultery in the heart. There was a, there was a shitload of that. The other thing was I'd stopped sleeping with her. And I remember one day she said, are we ever going to have sex? And I remember looking across at her and thinking, I hope not. I, I, I wasn't interested. And look, I'm not saying this to be nasty about her. I'm really not. I'm saying this is how I felt. I was in a bad marriage. She wasn't a bad person, but we we shouldn't have been married. And and that's the real villain here, right? Not her, not me. It's it's the marriage and it's this belief system that kept us locked locked in there. All right. So, in about December 1998, the work that I've been doing with the revival centers had sort of become quite well known around the sort of countercult scene in Australia and Someone that ran a counter-cult counselling service, say that three times fast, heard what it, heard what I was doing at the Revival Centre and reached out to me because he said, look, we've got this guy who's caught in a Pentecostal cult, not the Revival Centre, but another one, and his family want to see him exit counselled. So they decided... They were going to orchestrate a situation because they were taking him away to another country, stopping over in Singapore. What they did was they bought another ticket, unbeknownst to him, on the plane, which was me, and sat me next to him. So we're sitting there on the plane and he doesn't know that I'm a plant, right? It's full on, you know, James Bond shit, right, in some ways. So to the point where... And this is back in the days before the internet where you could book your tickets and everything. So they had to distract him, go up to the counter with me, book my seat next to him, So, but he couldn't see me and all kinds of stuff. You know, this is all going on at the airport. It was really full on. But then I got sat next to him on the plane. So I had a nine-hour flight from our city to Singapore. He started trying to evangelize me, as, he, as you would, and then I started talking to him about my experience. Oh, that sounds a lot like the church I was in. And I never attacked his church, never attacked his experience. I just told him my experience, right? Which is a clever way of what what we used to call deprogramming people. I remember this story. And I, I, I remember you telling me probably not long after you'd done this. And I, I've told my now partner this story um, and she loves it too. It's it's just a, a really it, it is it's a covert operation. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it was a classic because you know he introduced me to his family who were sitting a few rows back, and it was in the days um, it was Emirates, and you could smoke, right? So, and I, I think I was yeah I was definitely smoking by then. What, what hotel system are you staying at? Oh, I'm staying at the Holiday Inn. I'm staying at the Holiday Inn. What a coincidence, you know? Of course, it had all been set up. We had a great big chat on the plane. He's telling me all about his his religion and everything and I'm telling him about my experience and, oh, you know, wow, maybe you need to be careful because this is what happened to me, um, you know, and then I'd tell him my story. And then his mother was like, oh, I'm really glad you guys are friends. You know, we're going to be in Singapore for a week. Let's spend some more time. It's like, great, let's. At their expense, I was flown to and from Singapore, put up in a hotel, the same hotel as them, sent off to do day trips with him 
let's go shopping, let's go to, you know, amusement parks, let's go to Malaysia, all this kind of, and we just basically spent the whole week together and all, all on their dime. And I was also paid by this counselling service that they, they had paid me to do this. Suffice to say, I got him out, right? He actually then went on to this other country, realised this stuff had all sort of sunk in, came back, left that church, never went back. And it was, you know, it was a success. Hooray for me, Troy, the cult, cult buster, deprogrammer, whatever. But one thing I can remember was being with him one day and saying to him, you know what you need to do? You need to work out who you are and you need to discover who you are and what you want out of life. And Brian, as I said those words to him, it was like an ominous sense of you've never done that. You've gone from the revival centers to the AOG to Baptocostal to pop culture to this Churches of Christ. Who are you? And I sort of got stuck in that moment. It was even a bit of dissociation. I was like, uh. anyway, it was heavy, that moment. I couldn't see him all the time, of course. He still was doing other things with his family. And so here I am in Singapore. And you know what there's a lot of in Singapore? I, I, I would have mentioned that there's Asian girls. Yeah, shitloads. They grow them there. And so by that stage, you know, in my life I was drinking and smoking and the whole bit. And here I was a week away in a completely foreign country. I I sometimes revisit this story and think, were they deprogramming me? You know, here's me thinking I'm deprogramming him. Were they deprogramming? Did my parents pay for this? You know, because he got deprogrammed, but I think so did I. Because I was whisked away from the situation, from the church, from my, you know, my marriage, everything, and was telling this guy, this is what you need to do. And all of a sudden it was just like, quote scripture, the measure used is the measure used against you. Press down, shaking together, running over, brother. So I went out. Satan, Satan moves in mysterious ways. <laughs> he does move in mysterious ways. This is true. So I went out one night, went to a bar. I'm sitting in this bar by myself. Actually, it was daytime, day drinking sitting in this bar and there was this girl behind the bar, this Asian Chinese bar girl, but it wasn't like a bar girl as in like Thailand. It was just, she was just working in a bar, right? This is, this is Singapore. And man, was she flirting with me full on. So I started flirting back and she was just hot. She was just gorgeous. I was really into her and she was really into me. And she said, I knock off at whatever o'clock. Do you want to go and have some dinner? And I'm like, okay. And and in myself, I'm thinking, it's okay. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go and have dinner with this hot Asian girl. Nothing wrong with that, you know. And so we did. We went out for dinner. I just had such a good time. And we were walking through the streets and stuff. And I could just tell. If I had said to her, let's go back to my hotel room, she totally would have. It was just, it was just right there. And she wanted me to ask her to come back. I could tell she was waiting, you know. And I was like, no, that's not happening. Jesus. So the next day we caught up again 
and I'd brought tracts with me in Chinese. <laughs> oh, well played. Well played. So I gave her the Gideon's Bible from my from my hotel room and some Chinese tracts, which she said, I can't read them there the wrong kind of Chinese. So they were traditional Chinese instead of simplified Chinese. She couldn't even read them. But that was just me building a great big wall and saying, here, go away. But full on, it was just magical. It was wonderful. So you know what I did? It was the time of the Prince of Egypt that. The animated movie. The animated one, yeah. Yep. Not made by Miramar. <laughs> in Myanmar. Or, or, in Myanmar or Pixar. Or Miramax. I went and saw that and I cried the whole fucking movie. I just sat there and cried. And still to this day, the smell of Issey Miyake men's fragrance just takes me straight back to that Singapore trip whenever, because that's what I was wearing at the time. And I just, I just howled right through the Prince of Egypt, you know, which is this biblical story, you know, of, of uh, Moses and so I think I think I did meet her again. I think I met her three times, but it was definitely the last time that I gave her the Bible. I I really wanted to sleep with her, but I didn't. I didn't kiss her. We did go walking that night, the first night, and she sort of hooked in on my arm and held my hand while we walked. And that's that's an important point. So I come back to Australia. My ex is there to meet me at the airport, but by then, you know, she's still my wife at that stage, but yeah, you know what's coming. And she said to me later, she said, you know, you didn't kiss me hello when you arrived. And I said, didn't I? She's like, no. And I swear to you, that wasn't an intentional thing. I was just dripping in guilt and shame because because of what I'd nearly done and to some degree what I had done. Probably it took me about a week before actually actually I went to my pastor at the Churches of Christ and told him what had happened. And you know what his advice was? Keep it to yourself. Yeah, don't tell her. <laughs> That's what he actually said. Don't tell her. What was the justification for that? Well nothing happened and she doesn't need to know. Okay. That's actually the worst thing you can do is continue to keep secrets, right? It's actually f- full reveal is actually what you should do if you're trying to save a marriage. But anyway, fairness to him, he's a pastor, not a marriage counsellor. About a week later, we are in the car, and I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I told her. I told her everything that happened. And she said to me, did you sleep with her? No. Did you kiss her? No. Did you hold her hand? Yes. And I just saw her face drop and her heart break when I said that. And what's going on for you? You've seen, you know, this is someone who you don't want to be married to. Your relationship mm. is, is broken down. But knowing that you'd done that, that you'd made yeah, it Yeah, well, feel- I, 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 I didn't want to hurt her. No. The guilt, Brian, the guilt, the guilt of you know, what had happened in Singapore, the, the guilt, the guilt of it all, because there's no out. It's like trying to leave the revival center. The doors are bolted. There's no escape. So I told the pastor what I had told her 
And he's like, why did you tell her? Oh, you know. And he says, why are you trying to sabotage your own marriage? And that really, it was like, ding. Why am I trying to sabotage my own marriage? I know why. Because I want out. Two days later, I moved out. Moved out of the the home that you shared with your yep. wife. Yeah, I said I got I got to go. Where'd you go? I went to live at the with a with a pastor and his wife from and and their kids from the Church of Christ. It was actually the manse, so they let me stay there. I went on benefits, mental health for mental health. I was very depressed. I was again totally trapped. I was listening to love songs about brokenheartedness and all kinds of things. And I started drinking and I started drinking. Boy, did I start drinking. And pretty much I could say probably for about 10 years after that, maybe even longer, I continued to drink really heavily, which is why I don't drink to this day. You know, as you know, I've now quit. I was clubbing again, started going back to clubs, not, not raver clubs, just rank and file sort of clubs, really late nights, started hitting on girls, but I wouldn't shag them, a la Tom Tilly. <laughs> wouldn't shag them, I'd just sort of make out with them. But I was in so much pain and there was no way out and there was no hope. And the faith was crumbling around me because how could God want me to stay in this? How could that be God's will? And yet the Bible is very clear. What are you, what's happening though with your marriage? I mean, you've moved out, you're drinking heavily, you're out there hitting on other girls, you live, live in a single man's life. It was your intention to go, okay, marriage is done, I'm just going to move on? Well, it was, they called it a trial, the, the, the pastor, you know, the, pastor, the pastors who were counselling me were calling it a trial separation And so I was saying, okay, whatever, because that's easier. Let's call it a trial separation. But after a few months, and it was only a few months, like two, I thought I need to give this another go. So I went back to her. But before long, we were fighting again, and she tried really hard. She really did. In fairness, so did I. We sort of slowed our church attendance right down. We, we had sex a couple of times or, you know, a few times and then that, that sort of dried up again because I didn't want to. Because really, Singapore, I was done. But I just felt God, Jesus, church, salvation. I, I couldn't just walk away. And, you know, the Revival Centre thing had taught me there was no quick, easy escape. So... One of the local Bible colleges had a counselling course and they had some psychologists or Christian counsellors, whatever they were. So we decided to go and see a Christian marriage counsellor. Now this time is full Christian marriage counselling. And we were talking with him and she was telling, she started to open up about her family and all the shit pressure she was under from them. And, and he actually said, you know what, maybe I should just see you for a while, he said to her. And so she started having one-on-one with him and I went and saw a non-Christian psychiatrist for myself. So the marriage counselling, although we went a couple of times, eh, I went and saw her counsellor 
just me. And I don't know if this was ethical. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But he said to me, she is as damaged as you are. And I really believe that you two have issues and baggage that are at odds with each other, that, that, that it's not going to work. You two are both dealing, you know, he could see we were going in different directions. We were deconstructing a different rate. You know, we'd both had this extreme fundamentalist background and he said, I don't think she's going to change quick enough for you to actually save the marriage. And in essence, he gave me permission to leave. As a Christian counsellor, he had a, you know, he wasn't a pastor, but he was working at a Bible college and he gave me permission. Now, I still didn't have the theology to back this up, but he gave me permission. And I've asked myself many times, was that his place to do it? Was it his place? But I think it was a gift of grace. I think he could see that I was suffering. And he said, you need to make up your mind, but whatever you choose, it's okay. That's what he said. He didn't say, I think you should leave. So I came home that day from that appointment and said to her, I want to end the marriage. This is it. Not a trial separation. I want to end the marriage. Over the next couple of days, she was packing and I can just remember there was one where she she pulled out her wedding shoes, you know, the shoes that she'd worn on the wedding day and just howled. And my heart was breaking for her because she was in so much pain, but this was what I wanted. Like even telling the story now, I'm feeling like we've been telling so much darkness and heaviness and everything and now it's like, oh, yeah, and then it then I lived happily ever after, you know, when I got away. Even that language got away. I think I've shared this when my marriage ended. I didn't want it to end. My ex-wife wanted it to end. To end, She wanted out. I was doing everything I could to save it. Again, I wasn't the good guy. I was um, the bad guy many times, but I wanted to save it. I wanted, And I wanted to make it work. And I was desperate. I remember pleading with her to make it work and we split a couple of times but in the final time where much like you're saying she said I'm done there's no turning back I'm leaving the day she moved out I remember sitting at home that night and feeling so light because I felt I'd done all I could to try and hang on to it and I could do no more. It was done. So it's, it's an opposite spectrum to you. Like for you, it was you'd pull the pin and you felt that lightness and a joy. For me, it really soon changed to a real happiness once it was over. So it's, it's you know, sometimes you put yourself through pain. Do, do you think that your ex-wife felt a relief when it was done? No, I don't think so because for the next couple of years, she was pretty messed up. You know, I used to sort of check in with other people and see where she was at. And no, I think, I think it really hurt her. She sat in the counseling talking about the issues that we had. And she said, but the thing is, we just really love each other. She said to the counselor and I sat there thinking, no, I don't. And I don't know that I ever did, Brian. I know that's a really horrible thing to say, and it's not that she's not worthy of love. Of course she is. She's a great person. 
she wasn't for me. And it just, yeah. She moved out. I, I'm still feeling really responsible for her salvation. I didn't want her to lose her faith in God and everything. So I'm trying to keep her in church. And that's what I'd been doing for the last number of years was just, you know, this anxiety of keeping her in church and keeping her in God. So I helped her get set up at my brother and his wife's place who were Christians, who were, I said, bad Baptists. So she went and lived there. But I was just done. I remember not long after that, I went to a a meeting at the Churches of Christ and it wasn't actually one of our services. It was like youth youth and young people from all over the city coming together for this meeting. And there was a a guy from a, a, a principal from a Bible college, an evangelical Bible college who was there and he was talking and stuff. And, and, you know, I was in my whole uni deconstructing the Bible kind of stage. And I said, I remember putting my hand up and saying, you know, I think one thing we need to remember is that Jesus is not the Bible and the Bible is not Jesus. But people worship the Bible as if it is. The Bible points to Jesus, points to God. And I thought that that was a really cool thing to say and the right thing to say. And then this minister, Bible college principal said, let me stop you there. I get very concerned when I hear people diminishing the authority of scripture and blah, 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 blah. And he just dumped on me. And I was so fragile at the time that it was like he kicked me in the guts. And I just looked at him and I just thought, I am done. I'm done with this too. The next church service I went to at our our church, it was just meaningless. People were singing People were giving sermons. They were talking about being broken before the Lord and all this kind of stuff. And I just sat there and to quote, you know, one of those Andrew Murray, Charles Wesley, Spurgeon, the heavens were as brass. It was just, it was, it was switched off for me, Brian. It did not ring true or have any meaning for me at all. The doors were closed. When you say you went back to our church, are you referring to yours and your ex-wife's church? Was she still going there? Not when I went. Okay. You know, at alternate times. Ah, okay, cool. I did go again, though, sat in a service, and what had happened was there was a few other people divorcing at the same time. So basically in that church, they had a problem with divorce. It was like an epidemic. It was like three couples at once all getting divorced. What are we going to do? They had a service and basically the theme was why divorce is wrong. And they got, do you know Roland Croucher? Do you remember that name? I I do. Yeah, so they got Roland Croucher in, right, because he was a bit of authority to, to this church. And he got up there and preached all about how Jesus said you can't get divorced. I doubt he would do that now, but that's what he did that day. And so they'd basically brought him in to say the things that they couldn't say themselves because they could see how much, you know, people were in pain. No one ever talked to me about my divorce or or offered me any sort of counselling or anything like that. I was just on my own. And so that was it. I stopped attending. So that's probably around August, maybe even before then. It was definitely 1999. 
maybe mid-1999, later 1999. By that stage, the whole Great Big AOG gang, including, I think you you were in another state or wherever you were, but there was a whole group of them. They'd all left and they'd all gone to Great Big CCC, which is actually Bree's church. And they'd all started going there, you know, all, not them all, but most of my friends, most of the cool kids. And of course, I'd stopped connecting with them a long time ago because I was, you know, in the in the liberal church and now I'm splitting from my missus and everything, but I wanted nothing to do with them. But that's where they all went. They all went to the drinking church, but it was still very Pentecostal and hands raised and singing in tongues and, you know, hallelujah, seat bakala. I didn't want anything to do with them. I could just feel their judgment from across the city. Oh, look, I remember when news travelled to us, it was, yeah, it we were in another state. We'd moved a couple of years before this. I remember when news came. I news didn't come until a, a bit after because we were quite disconnected from those people too and I think you and I had sort of drifted apart. But it was definitely the news was delivered with judgment. But I remember thinking at the time, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised this one didn't last. Just, yeah, just you'd seen, you'd seen us at the train station. <laughs> that's right. I mean, screaming at each other in the countryside. We, we'd been friends since you guys had hooked up, pretty much, and then friends right through until not long before we left the state, really. So I, I think it was something that, and I've said this to you before, though I didn't think would last. I, I always thought you guys, you fought a lot. You were very, very different people. You could see that. It was just something potentially doomed from the start. But you guys obviously mm. saw something that brought you together. You've talked about that before, but it was certainly no surprise. However, as I said at the start, there was definitely the news when it came to us was delivered in judgment from some of those people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course, of course, of course. Because, you know, I had thrown up my hands and stormed out of Great Big AOG. And, you know, now I was reaping what I sowed. It all made sense to them. My uni studies were giving me an out. I didn't need to accept evangelicalism as true anymore. I was frightfully depressed. I was so full of guilt. There was that build-up of all those sites of injury, as Josie McSkimming calls it. It was just, it was a breakdown, Brian. I just hit a wall and I was drinking myself silly. I threw myself right into uni life which accommodated my drinking because I felt like I'd missed out on so much. You know, I'd missed out on going to real uni and all this. So I started hanging around with kids quite a few years younger than me, but they're all at uni and, you know, getting hammered. And I even ran on the socialist ticket at the university elections. How very dare you. I, I joined the most leftist fucking party I could on uni, on, on campus, and and ran on the ticket. When my ex-wife and I were doing our wills when the children were small, I remember we, we nominated her sister and brother-in-law to look after the kids should anything happen to both of us. But I wanted written into our will that the kids had to be members of the Socialist Party until they were 18 um, because you know me. And I remember, I, I don't know if we And it was did. also to counter the right-wing bullshit that they would have got from that family, right? 100%. And I'd always brought my, my kids up to be free thinkers. So, yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> Just a segue. No, no, cool, cool. I remember catching up with the pastor of the church. We went for a walk and I told him, all, you know, that I don't believe the Bible like I used to. I still I still call myself a Christian. 
I still believed in Jesus. That's why I felt so guilty about the divorce and everything. But I didn't believe Adam and Eve was a literal story anymore. This was huge. And he told me to read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, which is all about going to hell. And, and The Great Divorce is not about divorce. The Great Divorce is about going to hell. The thing about that is it's kind of like a purgatory. There is a way out at the end. And it's just you're just sort of in this sort of alone darkness kind of, you know, there are other people. You can go and see them if you want and everything. And it didn't sound too bad, you know. It was like, okay, I'll, I'll rather that than, than this marriage. I'd rather go to hell than be married to that woman or be in that marriage. I met a, a girl. She was Aussie Chinese at uni. Lots of fun. Enjoyed her company. She was an arts law student. Very, very bright. Not religious at all. We spent a lot of time eating, eating all this Asian food, which, you know, I wasn't eating with my ex because not white enough. And just going to places, going to restaurants, listening to music. And she wanted to sleep with me and she kept saying that she wanted to sleep with me, you know. Not, it wasn't just let's fuck. It was just I can't remember how, but it was obvious that's what she wanted. And I just kept saying no, a la Tom Tilly again, because for me – and this is, I think, more Revival Centre than AOG, that was really the end of the marriage if I stuck it in someone else. But I can remember the night that we actually did. And this is why I think if you go back and listen to the Tom Tilly episode, I said, you know, what was it like when you actually did it? Was there like almost music playing? There was almost music playing. It was like, you know, I wasn't having a psychotic break. The music wasn't really there, but it was like that. There was just this sense of ominous kind of, and I'm sorry, this is going to sound crass, but as I stuck it in her, it was like, and that's that. I'm free. It is finished. It is finished. That's right. I knew that before. I made the decision before because I see, for me, it was like, you know, if you want to talk about a book, like come back to the Revival Centre where I had done it one way. This time I didn't do it that way, right? I did not go and use sex to escape from a relationship. I left the relationship. I did everything honestly and with integrity, very little credibility, but I did it all correctly and then I slept with someone else. I played by the evangelical rules, to, at least to a point. Do you know what I mean? I didn't betray the marriage in that sense. Lynn and I... Yeah, we had a really good time, but I didn't want to be, didn't want her to be my girlfriend. I just wanted to hang out and shag and go and eat and have fun. And, and I told her that. It was, you know, all very clear. I finished my postgrad, end of 99. I'd heard about teaching overseas and you could go and teach English in Korea and Japan and China. And I was like, well, that's where they grow them, right? So I think that's what I might do. And so I got myself a job teaching English in Korea. And at the very end of December, 1999, I packed up the house, stored things at a friend's place, gave my car away to my good friend, Paul, who was doing the, the rave thing, who was just freaking out because I had just been this church planting, possibly an apostle in the making. And now all of a sudden I'm banging this Chinese girl and going to live in Korea. And by the last week of December, 1999, I was in Korea teaching English. I gave my wedding ring to some girl 
I met in a bar. Hey, you want this? You can have this. Because it was, you know, it was gold. And then I drank seriously heavily for the next three years and did not, well, rarely thought about religion. I was done. I wasn't an atheist, but I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't a very good one. I dare not say it out loud, but, you know, I was, I was a bad Christian. I was a backslidden Christian, but I still believed in my heart, so there was hope. You know, I got myself a girlfriend in Korea, and I was faithful to her. <laughs> you know, like just this whole sex thing because of the Revival Center, because of the AOG. I was just, that's, again, why I asked Tom Tilly, do you think this whole thing's messed you up sexually? I just had really weird rules, you know, like, and not, not weird, not weird by church, weird by general society, you know. And here I am going to this sort of sexually repressed Asian culture and ironically so many Pentecostals in Korea, Paul Yongi Cho, or Cho Yonggi, as you say in Korean, his church was there, the biggest church. I did not go near it. I was working with people who went to that church and I was just like, oh, don't fucking start. But what was interesting was Korea was held up as this shining light of Christianity and everything. And when I got there, I realized these people are Koreans first, then they're Christians, whereas we were Christians first and then Australians. These people were Koreans first. We were global soldiers for Christ. Amen, brother. So, yeah, look, let, let's 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 end that there, Brian. I mean, you ask me questions, whatever, but as far as the story, I think you know what happened to me in Korea and Singapore and China and all that is is a continuation, and maybe next year because you know we haven't got many episodes left, and I can I can go there and start telling those stories. But I think it's safe to say I haven't left the faith in the sense of saying I'm not a Christian and confessing I don't believe, but I have left church, I have walked away from fellowship, I am not doing anything to do with religion. I'm not even looking in at atheism or anything like that. I have just shut down. You're hiding away. Gone into my shell, mm. as Philip Yancey said. <laughs> yes, that's right. Philip Yancey, who you flushed your tattoo to, you dirty stop out. <laughs> I but, did. Um, my, Asian, my Asian tattoo. You did. Grace. Grace. Yeah, which, which, which I got while living in Nineveh. Did you, <laughs> did you ever get a sense that you were hiding out or you were just having a great time and partying it up in Korea? Oh, dude, I was not happy. I was miserable. And that's why I drank so much. But when I drank, fuck, I was happy. I remember you Skyping me from Korea with your then girlfriend. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Heong. Heong was in it. Heong, yeah. Yeah, I remember, I remember you Skyping me from an internet cafe, I think it was. It was, I remember thinking to myself, he's gone. Mm. I mean, he's gone. That's it. It's, he's moved on. I would have judged you. There's absolutely no doubt about it, but I don't remember. I don't remember any of my thoughts, specific thoughts at the time, but of course I would have judged you. Although I was in a, I was in a church of Christ at that time, pretty graceful sort of Yeah, period. so maybe you were a bit more compassionate than you, than you remember. Who I, knows? I, I, I actually do remember thinking at the time I couldn't give a shit about the fact that, because I felt like you were going, hey, look, I'm dating someone and it's not my ex-wife who you know. And I remember thinking, Oh, I don't. I don't care. And it wasn't that I didn't care about you. I remember thinking, 
oh, that, that doesn't faze me. I actually. <laughs> so yeah, well, I was I, I was definitely trying to rub your nose in it as, as if to say, don't you fucking dare judge me. Look what I'm doing, you know, and whether you were or not, it, it wasn't about you. You know what I mean? It was about me and it was me going, look what I'm doing. Because there was a couple of people who said that to me when I came back to Australia for, a, for visits a couple of times. They're like, are you trying to shock me? Because I'd tell them the stories of what I got up to. And it's like, no, but fuck you. That's how it was. Yeah, of course, of course you were. Of course you were trying. Any of us would have been trying to shock then. But I also remember being envious. It's just like, oh, here's this guy living overseas, living the dream, living the life. It was a sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle without the drugs. But it was a, it was a, it really was. Yeah. It was just rock and roll, man. And like just the way that we were living, drinking ourselves just like freaking Motley Crue. And look, I don't say this to brag. I really don't, right? We were just, sleeping away around you know if, if i if i was in between girlfriends fine it was just making up for lost time and and probably trying to deal with your hurt and your pain oh dude that's exactly what was going on i was using sex and alcohol and partying to numb the pain these were maladaptive coping strategies that's why i said i'm not bragging i'm not proud of what i did i look back now and that's not who i am now and I don't even know if it was who I am, who I was then in the sense of who I was deep down, but it was just trying to numb the pain of divorce, possibly going to hell. My whole worldview had broken down. Everything had just collapsed. And yeah, so I was, I was an alcoholic. But we've established though in hell that you can still go visit your friends around the corner and have dinner with them and hang out. So it's not that bad. Yeah, you can make a podcast. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, it's okay. But, dude, I just do want to check in, in all honesty. I mean, there's some painful stuff that you brought up. There's some shitty stuff for you. Mm. How you doing? This has been rattling around for the last week as I've been preparing for this. Getting this out, I actually feel lighter. I will go and see my EMDR therapist and she can flash the light and wave her finger at me and I'll try and deal with the trauma of the, you know, whichever hemisphere is where the trauma lives. I think this is a good thing for me to get this story out, but I wouldn't want to retell this again and again and again. No way. So what you're saying is that you're going to have to pay for two counselling sessions in one week, one with her and one with me, and that's okay. I'll cut your discount. Actually, I'm not seeing her this week. I'm seeing her next week. Couldn't get in this week. Oh, that's good. So you've only got one per week. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. There you go, Brian. That's my story. So... Officially, as far as this is concerned, Troy has left his marriage. Troy has left church. Mm. Troy is not living like a believer. Mm. It is now 1999, coming into 2000. I remember New Year's Eve 1999 in a taxi in Korea as the the clock ticks over midnight in Australia because the time, time was different and thinking, here I am. And you partied like it was 1999. I did indeed, dude. Didn't want to miss that one. So it was uh, it was good times. And and here we are, 23 years later. A lot has happened in between then and now for us to explore, of course. Oh, God, yeah. Yes. So yeah. Ne- next year I want to tell you all about my atheism. But we'll <laughs> oh, get to that next year. Let, let me t- – I can't wait till you tell that because that is when you pissed me off. You yeah. were a hateful atheist. And, and I was angry. And I, I'm pretty sure there's a couple of times I might have blocked you from my Facebook page because you were just so antagonistic to friends who were still at church. And, oh, yes, that's going to be good. That's fun yeah. stories. Let's put a pin in that one. Put a pin in it. Yeah, you, you, can, you can hate me later. 
All right, mate. Thank you. And look, I'm going to go and uh, get some soothing medication for my man cold. And hopefully I make it through the night because it will be touch and go, I would imagine. All right, mate. Well, I'll see you in 14 nights. Hmm, That's a fortnight.